0: Before I begin my sermon and find my way to the pulpit to do that, you might want to take out a little piece of paper and a pencil or pen to take a couple of notes that might be interesting to you in just a moment. It isn't a quiz, but I want you to think back when you were a child, ages 5 to 10, maybe even 13. And you're out playing if you grew up in my neighborhood with 12 boys, all the same age, all the same school, all the same grade grade level, uh, we were probably into a lot of dirt during the day, playing football, baseball, whatever we could do in the street. And when it was time to eat, either lunch or supper, but especially supper, the mothers would go out on their porches the front doors, anyway, and start calling us all in with one strong bit of advice. Wash your hands before you come to the supper table. Now, how many times do you think your mother said that in her lifetime? How many times are you saying it to your kids? How many times does my wife say it to me still? Interesting thing about the hands. Presbyterian Health Services has has stated in their their training materials for volunteers that clean hands are the single most important factor in preventing the spread of germs. If we ever needed a reason to wash our hands, that was it. And as a result, with hand washing going on everywhere—in fact, even right down here at the side of the pulpit—there is Clorox, there are gloves. There's a liquid sanitizer and some cleaning wipes. When you leave here and you get to your car, you may sanitize your hands with the the material you carry in your car or your briefcase or a purse. You'll find these sanitation uh, materials, uh, the lotions and such available at the entrance to most stores like Smith's and Albertson's and all the others. And, of course, so many of you are wearing masks today, which a week ago wasn't required, but now, again, it's required. We've been fighting this virus for a year, and it really is close to us. In fact, it's a companion closer than we can even appreciate or even know. But, you know, it wasn't always being clean because of a virus. We were, by nature and training, basically very clean people. Our cleanliness was important to us. I mean, just think of all the products that are advertised on TV during the daytime and on the radio. Publications or flyers you get in the mail. Think of your own house. Now, this is where the list comes in handy. What are the cleaning products in your house? Well, I wondered about that, so uh, I took an inventory. And uh, these, My list may uh, coincide with yours, quite frankly. In the kitchen, there is Cascade, Finish Rinse, Weimer Cooktop Cleaner, Dawn Power Wash. Now in the cabinet where we store most of the household cleaners, there's a lot. There is Arm & Hammer, there is Resolve, Cleaning vinegar, i never heard of cleaning vinegar before. Mop and Glow, Lysol, Windex, Simple Green, Clorox, Soft Scrub, Stainless Steel Cleaner, and of course, we cannot forget Mr. Clean. In the bathroom, there are face silks, various shampoos and conditioners. There is first aid antiseptics to clean small cuts and abrasions. And then you get to the garage, well, the garage isn't a clean room. It's more of a dirt collector. It never gets clean. Now, assuming that most people have a similar list of products to stay clean on the outside, how many products do they have to stay clean on the inside, to stay clean from sin? How many products do they have that can give them a clean heart? In Jesus' day, cleanliness was not next to godliness. Cleanliness was more important than godliness. The washing of hands tradition was created by the scribes and elders and Pharisees and other teachers of the law. It was elaborate and it was complicated. In his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, Alfred Edersheim, a well-known Jewish scholar in the 1800s, stated that the ordinances of the scribes were declared more precious and of more binding importance than those of Holy Scripture itself." What the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders and teachers of the law had to say was more important than what the Scripture said. So knowing that, now we can understand why Jesus responds so sharply when He's criticized for letting His disciples eat with unwashed hands. Washing of hands had nothing to do with public health, and Jesus doesn't even talk about hand washing. Instead, he condemns the entire system of the clean, unclean traditions as dangerous to the spiritual life and the health of the people that's supposed to help, which was everyone. Jesus says these, tra- these traditions try to get rid of God's law to replace it with their own tradition. They let go of God's word, and they force people to cling only to their traditions, which have been handed down for generations. Now, Jesus makes it clear in his conversation with the Pharisees and scribes, Jesus makes it clear that God has not created these traditions, God has nothing to do with their creation, he has nothing to do with them. Jesus makes it clear that they, the Pharisees, and the other teachers of the law all those who enforce these traditions are canceling God's law and replacing it with their own. That's out of the mouth of Jesus. And as you read the text, you can hear the sternness and even sarcasm, I think, when you hear him saying, you have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God in order to preserve your own tradition. Jesus' condemnation cuts through the Pharisees like a sword. He's telling them, you've been doing this for generations. You have created traditions that force people to not honor God's commands. You hold people captive and do not set them free to serve the Lord. You force them to neglect their parents. Now, this really is not polite, small talk over coffee or tea or the local Starbucks of the day. Jesus is indicting them. And he's using an an example that goes right to the heart of the corruption of the temple system. He didn't choose the first three commandments as an example that focus on our relationship with God. Instead, he uses the fourth commandment for his example. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land your God has given you. This commandment is close to the first three. And the fourth commandment, as it is, cannot be any closer to the heart of God. Luther put it this way, it pervades every area of our life. The commandment is not only calling for honoring parents, but also to honor everyone who has authority over us. This commandment is at the heart of God's law, right in the middle. It relates to parents, to children, and how we relate to each other and to all the people who have authority over us. But how were the traditions canceling God's law? How does that come about? Well, he gives another example. He says, they are forcing children to neglect their parents, neglect them in order to support the temple financial system. He says, any support that is owed to the temple as a result of a vow you have made to the temple for a gift, that vow and fulfillment of that vow has priority over any need your parents have. Now, you can sense the frustration and directness in Jesus' words as He continues with His indictment. Because it enforces children to neglect their parents for the sake of the temple, He is calling for the entire purification system as heresy. It doesn't make anyone clean before God. Instead, it teaches people to believe that if they do everything correctly, God will be pleased with them. But clearly, Jesus is not pleased and God is not pleased. But still, Jesus does not let up with the rest of the text from verses 14 to 23, which we didn't read this morning, which contains a lot of information. He calls a crowd that has gathered to come closer. He has more to say, and he wants them to hear it. He's saying that all the scrubbing in the world will not make them clean before God. He says, it's not the things that go into your mouth that are ceremonially unclean or make you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth. It's what's already in your heart that's unclean, and what comes out of your heart cannot be cleansed by soap and water. And what comes out of the cart comes out of the heart. He's very specific. He gives us the list. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, arrogance, and interestingly enough, foolishness. These things make us unclean in God's sight. All these things are addressed in God's law and the Ten Commandments. And when Jesus teaches the people in His Sermon on the Mount He explains and describes how we break these commandments every day. It's just our human nature. And we've had this nature, as we know, ever since Adam and Eve broke God's law in the Garden of Eden. They were the first that thought that they had a better way than God had designed for them. And they were wrong. And as their descendants, we have been wrong ever since. But to them, God promised a Savior one who would crush the power of this sin. And Isaiah describes him in detail, as we heard in the Old Testament reading. Jesus would make it happen. Jesus would make everyone who believes in him clean before God. Jesus would become our sin. He would suffer and die to pay the price God demanded to be paid. Jesus became one of us. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, he lived a sinless life but he was made accountable for the sin of everyone in the world, past, present, and future. And for that, he was put to death. But God raised him up to live forever, having crushed the power of sin and death. And to to everyone who believes in him, he crushes the power of sin and death to them and gives them eternal life. Of all these cleaning agents, We have in our homes and people have used over the centuries and traditions that have been established to try to cleanse the inside of our hearts. Jesus is the only cleansing solution to our uncleanness before God. He washes us from the inside, gives us a clean heart. Jesus' blood is a divine solution that gets out every spot, stain, and wrinkle and blemish of sin in our heart. When the water of baptism is poured on us Jesus cleans out hearts to believe in Him. When we read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see Jesus much more clearly. When we eat the bread and wine, we receive Jesus' body and blood to strengthen our faith in Him, believing He died and rose from the dead, cleansing us from all our sin. And when we do sin, we confess our sinfulness, asking Jesus to make us clean again. And He does. Just like he promised. Now, in this text, throughout the conversation of Jesus with the Pharisees, they finally, the Pharisees finally just walk away. Now, they're offended and they're probably angry, but they're walking away anyway. They will have many more encounters with Jesus with no reconciliation. They will continue to enforce all of their traditions and they will continue to challenge Jesus as he gives sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute, restored bodies to the weak and crippled, raising the dead, forgiving people's sins, and restoring their relationship with God. And you know, even still, even today, people hear these things and people walk away. People who need to have their hearts cleansed, they hear what Jesus has to say, and they walk away. There are times when I'm at the bedside of a patient who is dying. The patient knows it. The family is at the bedside and they know it. Friends know it. As we sit there with the patient, talking, sometimes a discussion will begin and get around to a number of opinions about life after death. What's out there? And there are another There are a number of uh, opinions, they're not options because they don't exist, but they're opinions that are often mentioned. And there's a new one that has been mentioned for a few years now, but it's kind of, everybody seems to be familiar with it. It's called the better place opinion. The better place has no logical basis. It makes no sense, but it does eliminate the need for relying on enough good works to have a place in some kind of afterlife. And the better place is simply this. I am going—I'm going to die. I'm going to a better place. I don't know what it is, where it is, or anything about it. I just know it'll be a place better than I had in life. Now, that's it Entirety. A TV series is based on the better place idea, and perhaps you've seen it. In the TV series, though, a person's eternal life is spent working hard to stay in the good place to avoid being sent down to the bad place. Now, that's just one of many traditions our culture seeks, uses to uh, nullify the Word of God, and Satan, of course, is behind all of them. leads us to doubt the Word of God, He leads us to think we can come up with a better idea for cleansing the sin in our lives. But it's the same lie Adam and Eve believed in the Garden of Eden. They couldn't even hide their sin when they committed it. They saw the immediate result of their sin. They were naked. But God, in His mercy, gave them clothes that He made from the death and by the death and through the death of animals. His first act of compassion to our sinfulness was to clothe them, and then He gave them a promise of a permanent robe of righteousness, a, a promise that He fulfilled that was purchased by the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. We can provide similar acts of mercy and compassion to those who have no place to go. What can you say or provide to those who are clinging to fantasies about what comes after the end of life? Well, we can give them a map—a road map of sorts—that takes them from where they are to where they really want to be, which is in the presence of God. You can find this map easily. It's often printed on the back of sympathy greeting cards or thinking-of-you cards. If you mention it to them, they will probably recognize it. And you can mention it to them or include include it with a note, and probably you can recite all, or at least part of it, with, from memory, and it's simply Psalm 23. I use it as a map in talking with folks on how we go from life to life, and how the 23rd Psalm kind of shows us how the Lord accompanies us, He's there, He's never far away, but the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want, God is my leader and provider. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. God provides for my refreshment and rest. He restores my soul. God takes care of the real me, the part that's really in touch with God, and that lives on after my body dies. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name'sake. for God knows the best direction I should take in all my affairs and will keep trying to get me in it. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The presence of God in our lives assures us that even though we will always be vulnerable to death and cannot escape it, we will have total protection from His presence. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In the worst of times, when the whole world is crumbling around me, God prepares a feast for me to eat in full view. God's presence is complete protection and provision in adversity. You anoint my head with oil. You heal me. My cup overflows. You nourish me. And surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life simply means God will work everything for the good, even what I'm going through now, no matter how bad it seems. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will live in eternity in the actual presence of God, having completed the journey with Him. I see these as promises, promises that God has made, promises Jesus has activated, because through, through, through these words, The Holy Spirit creates faith to believe in Jesus who activated the promises. These promises are poured into our hearts as Jesus washes the sin out of them. Now we've learned a lot about cleanliness from our experience with the COVID virus. We know that washing can only keep the virus off of us for a time. But washing cannot clean or remove the spiritual virus that has invaded our bodies. It doesn't wash out of our bodies. And today's traditions cannot wash out the sin that's in our heart. Only Jesus can wash it out. Clean hands? Well, of course, for the sake of your body and a clean heart, and of course, yes, for the sake of your heart and soul, believe that Jesus cleans our heart. One verse from Isaiah, chapter one, verse 18. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That pretty well sums up the whole process of redemption that God sent Jesus to carry out in our lives. And that verse from Isaiah has been rendered into a real short, but easy to remember, very easy to sing chorus called White as Snow. And the lyric is this. White as snow, white as snow. Though my sins were as scarlet, Lord, I know. Lord, I know that I'm clean and forgiven. Through the power of your blood, through the wonder of your love, through faith in you I know that I can be white as snow. In the name of Jesus, amen. We stand now to confess together our faith in the God who cleanses our hearts to live forever with him. It's